0: TONIGHT ON RHODE ISLAND PBS WEEKLY.
1: I think that rhythm and blues and Rhode Island go together. They belong together.
0: Just tell us what you doing. We need to know how to help you.
2: It's a scene that has become increasingly common in Providence and around Rhode Island.
3: It's a confirmed overdose. Uh, he's gotten uh, six milligrams of Narcan, but he still goes in and out of consciousness
2: a person overdosing on fentanyl.
0: Things are different nowadays, so the kids are usually on the phone, so it's nice to have the kids outside doing things and and not on their phones, right, Sam? <laughs>
4: Good evening, welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And
2: I'm Michelle San Miguel. Rhode Island has a special relationship with music, and some
4: say one genre stands above the rest. In the late 1940s, rhythm and blues came north with the great migration of African Americans leaving the South. In the Ocean State, still a segregated society, it captivated both black and white audiences. Tonight, contributing producer Elena Manis introduces us to one group that's on a mission to make R&B the state's official music.
1: When I was a kid, all my cousins were musicians and I started picking up the guitar and, and, and then the, the terminology R&B came out. And it just affected me, you know. It affected me a lot because I felt like, is it some sort of magic? You know, I mean, really, you know, is it some sort of magic that they got that they can do this? No, it's not magic. You're just around it all the time where it's just natural. What grabbed me most about R&B is I guess the feeling. Everybody always said, well, it's the feeling, it's the feeling, it's the feeling. I don't really know it's in my blood somehow. My name is Cleveland Kurtz. I'm the president of the Rhode Island Rhythm and Blues Preservation Society. We are doing what we can to preserve the music, doing what we can to celebrate the music, and to record the history of the music. I think that Rhythm and Blues and Rhode Island go together. They belong together. Rhode Island was the place where freedom of religion Uh, originated, one of the places, probably the most important place. And what that did was that destroyed boundaries between people. Rhythm and Blues does the same thing, right? And so, um, that's why I think they belong together.
0: The thing
1: that is very uh, unique about rhythm and blues is it makes it brings people together people who are not ordinarily uh, going to hang out together when you start piping out the music they will show up they will sing play and dance together an art form that destroys barriers like they don't even
5: exist it's not white music per se, it's African American music, and it really, the, the rhythm and blues was a term that was coined really, I think, by the record industry. It's two types of music, good and bad. It was really good, and then people heard it, and it didn't matter what color you were, you liked it.
1: Rhythm and blues started in the 40s, according to most people.
6: We'll be happy as we can be, but so we start jumping, did you believe?
1: I guess one of the premier tunes was Louis Jordan singing jump blues with his seven-piece band.
3: Sure
1: like the you had Little Richard.
2: Well, let's shake a
1: Later on, Elvis Presley showed up.
4: Well, it, up, baby, it,
1: up it snuck across the English Channel, and groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones started to practice on it. In Rhode Island, Uh, we had a club called the Celebrity Club. And that was the place where most people, I think, think that the uh, races started to mingle uh, and people started to get along because the music lent itself to that. People from everywhere came to see the club, came to the club, white and blacks and everybody else in between. And the music was the heart of it. People came there because they love hearing the music. Nothing could suit that kind of thing better uh, if we're going to select a music for our state as rhythm and blues because it's the one that people go to to hear the most. People play live the most. We contacted Representative Bennett and told him that we thought it was a wonderful idea. And he agreed with us.
0: The the way I got into rhythm and blues was through uh, Cleveland Kurtz. And uh, he called me and started talking to me about, you know, the history of rhythm and blues and how it brought people together. You know, I guess somebody told him I was a musician at one time. You know, and he wanted me to run run a bill to see if we could get this to be the state music. And I said, sure, I'd do that because it makes sense. You want to blend in which is going to capture all of Rhode Island. Rhythm and Blues is a blend of cultures and a blend of styles. You know, you have your jazz, you have your blues, you have your rock. Well, there's all touches to that in Rhythm and Blues. It's a dan- kind of a dance kind of music, and it appeals. You know, Spanish, you know, the, the, the blacks, the whites, um, they all like that kind of music. <laughs> Paul Filippi, uh, he started the Celebrity Club back in the 40s. <laughs> and he had some great people play there. Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald. People would go there to, to listen to the music and because it attracted the different races they would blend in and have a good time. And, and, you know, back in 1940, 1950, that wasn't too much heard of. I mean, you name it, he was bringing in rhythm and blues stuff that you, you wouldn't believe. But Paul lives as a legend in, in Rhode Island, especially in the color community. The color community tends to see him as, as someone who actually integrated the clubs here. You have to think, Mr. Phillippe, for doing this for Rhode Island, bringing that kind of music into our state. And that's why I feel it should be, you know, the state's, the state music, uh, because it crosses so many genres. And then, which is going to capture all of Rhode Island?
1: The story is that the, uh, because of the music, people from everywhere came to see the club, came to the club, white and blacks and everybody else in between, and that, was happened long before. Uh, that was a common thing in Rhode Island, and so. The music overcame the barriers, and I think that that's the thing that is significant. And I believe that you can credit Rhythm & Blues with doing that on a worldwide basis. R&B is everywhere. It's sneaky in a sense that right now, one of the world's favorite Rhythm & Blues singers is Adele from England. So it's everywhere and everybody is doing it.
7: Ooh, when you find
3: yourself,
7: there's no to it.
1: So rhythm and blues is here to stay. It's always gonna sneak in there. It's always gonna tear down barriers. It's always gonna sound good.
2: The bill to make R&B Rhode Island's official music genre did not make it out of committee this legislative session, but will be reintroduced in the next session. Now we turn to the opioid crisis. Here in Rhode Island, it's fueled by fentanyl, a synthetic opioid used to treat patients with severe pain. It's about 100 times stronger than morphine. More than 860 people in Rhode Island died of a drug overdose over the past two years. Health officials say drug overdose deaths remain at crisis levels in the state. As we first reported in April of 2022, public health experts point to supervised drug injection sites as a way to reduce the number of overdoses. Rhode Island is the first state in the country to legalize these centers.
0: What did you do? How old are you? You, you, you do some fentanyl today? All right, what do you do then? Just tell us what you do. We need to know how to help you.
2: It's a scene that has become increasingly common in Providence and around Rhode Island.
3: It's a confirmed overdose. Uh, he's gotten uh, six milligrams of Narcan, but he still goes in and out of consciousness.
2: A person overdosing on fentanyl.
8: We've reduced opioid prescriptions dramatically in the state. We've expanded as- access to recovery programs And it's still not enough.
2: Brandon Marshall says Rhode Island needs to do more to tackle the state's growing opioid crisis. He's an associate professor in epidemiology at Brown University. Marshall says the pandemic contributed to a spike in overdoses.
8: People have mental health conditions who are experiencing anxiety, depression, for example, Have very very high rates of overdose and of course people with economic instability people who are experiencing homelessness or job loss during the pandemic were at very high risk for returning to substance use or you know increasing overdose risk
2: marshall believes supervised drug injection sites also known as harm reduction centers can help curb overdoses a rhode island law that took effect in march allows those facilities to operate in the state during a two-year pilot program.
8: Typically, these centers, at least in the United States, would be funded privately, so by donations or from other sources. As far as I'm aware, there are no plans to provide state or local dollars to operate these facilities.
7: When first someone enters, they're going to come up to this registration desk.
2: Just no like sites a- have opened in Rhode Island yet. They, Celine um, Means, an advocacy coordinator at Rhode Island Communities for Addiction Recovery Efforts, gave us a tour of a mock harm reduction center at the organization's downtown Providence office. They um, will write in their initials or a client ID and
7: what substance and method they will be using. It's all anonymous.
2: People will bring um, their own drugs to the clinic and use them under the supervision of trained staff. Employees and volunteers will be able to administer naloxone to reverse overdoses and can provide drug users with resources for getting clean. These are all
7: Rhode Island-based resources around recovery, treatment, safe streets, housing, um, food, shelter.
2: There are more than 120 harm reduction centers around the world. Professor Marshall has spent nearly two decades studying their impact
8: there has actually never been an overdose death at any harm reduction center anywhere in the world because overdoses can be effectively managed on site.
3: No, we got it, we got it. just let it hit the ground. I right, it on. All right, that's it. You got it.
8: Many overdoses are being treated at
2: hospitals. Patients who experience an opioid overdose account for 1.9 billion dollars in annual hospital costs nationwide according to the Pew Charitable Trusts. Not only would harm reduction centers reduce those health care costs, but Marshall says they would also help get users into treatment. He points to the first supervised drug injection site to open in Canada back in 2003.
8: After about two years of operation, more than 40% of people using the site had entered into some form of treatment, and that's because of those referrals, and those pathways that are being provided by connecting people to treatment and recovery in the site itself.
7: So once um, a person's turn has been called, they come over here to a table to grab their supplies. We give out these supplies such as clean cookers, clean needles, clean water, and fentanyl test strips, all so that you can make sure that your use is safe and clean.
2: Rich Holcomb knows firsthand what it's like to be in the throes of addiction, He's overdosed more than a dozen times.
5: He, he loaded up the needle for me and injected me and within, within seconds I had completely blacked out.
2: Holcomb has walked the road from overdose to recovery. As the program manager for Project Weber in Providence, he helps men who've engaged in sex work, oftentimes to pay for drugs. It's a life that he once lived. Holcomb says the last time he used drugs several years ago, he overdosed.
5: I was getting high um, with a friend of mine. Um, we were in his apartment, um, you know, after, after several years clean and uh, directing the Project Weber program, I relapsed. I woke up to paramedics around me um, and uh, didn't know what had just happened. And they just said, you just overdosed.
2: In 2020, three in four fatal overdoses in Rhode Island involved fentanyl. Proponents of injection sites say users would be able to test their substances for fentanyl at those facilities. If harm reduction centers existed when you were using, would you have gone to one?
5: Um, That's an interesting question, and I want to give an honest answer. Um, I, I genuinely don't know. If it was a facility that was run by peers and I trusted those peers, then I think that the chances of me going in um, a facility like that would be pretty high.
2: But not everyone is embracing the concept of regulated injection sites. State Representative David Place is among the lawmakers who voted against them. The worst thing that we
3: could do, in my opinion, for these addicts, which is find- give them a warm, safe place to... shoot up
2: place represents parts of gloucester and boroughville he knows of people in his community who've died of drug overdose but he doesn't think harm reduction centers are the answer to the opioid crisis it's not me saying i don't care about addicts it's not me saying i don't want addicts to survive it's me saying we're doing we're going about it the wrong way Instead, he says, the conversation should focus on decriminalizing drugs and destigmatizing addiction, along with reaching out to people who are using drugs. Everything
3: that I've seen about treating somebody with
2: addiction, the only way you get them is when they're at rock bottom. And a lot of those times, unfortunately, unfortunately comes when they've experienced overdose, whether themselves personally or their friends. But that rock bottom could be death for some people
3: yes it could be
2: while federal law makes it illegal to open a place for the purpose of using a controlled substance professor marshall says he's not worried about the federal government closing future facilities in rhode island he notes that the first two authorized drug injection sites in the country
8: opened last november in new york city honestly we've seen a pretty sudden and dramatic shift in the federal response under the biden administration They've been actively supporting harm reduction generally, including syringe service programs and Narcan distribution. They haven't made a formal stance on harm reduction centers yet, but I haven't seen any, any, any indication that they would try to interfere with facilities that will be legal here in Rhode Island under our state law
2: but under federal law would still be illegal.
8: That's right, that's right. But we have other examples where state and federal laws conflict, a classic example would be cannabis, right, which is legal in many states, but which remains illegal federally. They find bodies in the alley, they find bodies in the abandoned houses, and people
3: don't lose no sleep.
2: Kevin Montero is a peer recovery specialist. He works with people who've battled addiction. He believes injection sites will reduce the number of people who use drugs alone.
3: What's wrong with our society? We accepted the fact that people are going to die. We accepted the fact they might die in Kennedy Plaza, or they might die behind a store.
2: MONTERO SPENT 30 YEARS IN A COLORADO PRISON FOR SECOND-DEGREE MURDER THAT HE SAYS CENTERED AROUND DRUGS.
3: The reason why I'm sitting here today is because I actually was guilty of the crime. And once I accepted that, and I accepted the fact that I was guilty, I accepted the fact my behavior while I was in solitary confinement, regardless of the time period I was in there, I took responsibility. And once I took responsibility, my life changed.
2: He believes safe injection sites will be a lifeline for those suffering from addiction.
3: Most people that have, and I'm speaking for myself now, that have substance use disorder The primary cause was a broken heart, broken family, just everything in your life. When you don't have the tools to do what you need and to make decisions, man, you always, most of the time, you're going to fall off.
4: So far, the Department of Health hasn't received any applications to open a harm reduction site. But two community groups have received funding to open a center in the near future. Finally tonight, we meet a man from Coventry who five years ago was fishing in a local pond when a group of kids approached him and asked if they could borrow one of his fishing poles. As we first reported last October, that encounter helped start a program that has had an impact on the lives of hundreds of young people, not to mention his own.
6: My name is John Gretchen, I'm the founder of Keeping Kids Fishing. What we do is each Sunday, um, I usually choose uh, a lake in Coventry because it's a big shoreline. Um, I set up a a table, I put fishing poles out, I put um, uh, worms out, gear, dabbers, sinkers, anything the kids would need. I advertise it and the kids come and I show them how to fish. And towards the end of the day, if they um, are into it, they you know they take their fishing poles home with them.
7: I caught seven fish, eight around there.
6: Uh, I started. I taught myself at four years old. Uh, my dad worked a couple of jobs, and my mom would bring uh, my brother to softball. I wasn't really into sports at four. So I would um, play along the shoreline. There was a pond nearby. And I taught my, like I said, I found some string, I put a hook, I found a hook, and then I dug up some worms and I was on my way. And uh, I realized that there's a lot of kids that um, they don't have anyone to show them.
0: Things are different nowadays. So kids are usually on the phone so it's nice to have the kids outside doing things and and not on their phones right Sam Mm
6: -hmm. (laughs) one person uh, brought her son Uh, he was a gamer he was always in his room playing on his tablets and playing the games on the computer and she said she had to drag him out of the house to come to the event and he had a t-shirt on that said I paused my game for this and she brought him back he had a good day and he came back the next week with a friend and then the following week he came back with two friends and now he's no longer in his room playing on the games, he's out fishing with his new friends. This helps me because I have a severe Neural Lyme disease and it causes anxiety and manic depressive disorder. And when you see the child catch the first fish, it just takes it all away.
7: The favorite part about uh, fishing is catching fish because you get to see what kind of fish you caught.
6: And how many did you catch today? Um, one. Uh, Last year, uh, we had a um, a fundraiser at Camp Westwood in Coventry, and a little girl had won her first fish, uh, the first fish trophy. And she came up to me with her mom, and she asked me if she could give me a hug. And I look at the mom, and the mom nods, and so I gave her a hug, I said, thank you. I, I said, why would you give me a hug? And she says, well, you see this trophy? And I said, yes, you won the first fish. And she goes, no, you got this for me. So I asked her, well, how did I get that trophy for you? She said, you gave me a fishing pole. You show me how to use it. You show me how to cast and how to reel it in and how to put the bait on. And I caught a first fish. You did this. You caught me that first fish. And I was really, really touched. So this this gives me a good feeling knowing that I'm you know, giving them some education and uh, hopefully some memories to carry on with them. There you go, that's all I have
2: set. A Keeping Kids Fishing founder John Gratian reports that his organization has now donated more than 2,100 fishing kits to area youth. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel.
4: And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast, available on your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you, and good night.